If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Be able to describe your business in one sentence. Be really clear about it. And if you can't do that, ask yourself why you can't do that. You cannot build a successful business without knowing how much cash you've got in the bank. Good morning, afternoon and evening and welcome. We have a feast for your ears today. Our guest is Karen Jones. She's best known as the co-founder of Café Rouge, the chain of restaurants. Now her career is a textbook story of entrepreneurship. She was raised in Yorkshire in northern England before studying English and American literature at the University of East Anglia, where she's now come full circle as she's their chancellor. As the Café Rouge brand grew, Karen and her co-founder Roger formed the Pelican Group, which was eventually acquired in 1996 by Whitbread for a reported £133 million. Not bad. Karen couldn't stay away from the table, or rather bar, for too long, and after buying 3,500 pubs under the private equity-backed Spirit Pubs, she acquired a further 1,500 pubs from Scottish and Newcastle to add to her empire. Seven years later, the journey culminated in the sale of the whole group back to Punch. Karen is not the kind of person to sit back and put her feet up. So she just casually joined the boards of, you know, ASOS and Booker and a bunch of others, and also founded the London gastropub company Food and Fuel Group. She's busy, restless, determined, and bloody British. So without further ado, welcome Karen. Karen, to break the ice, uh, we'd like to go through a quick fire round, please. Okay. So feel like we might know some of the answers, but let's uh, let's see if you handle any surprises. Gastro pubs or posh restaurants? Gastro pubs. Good. Beer or wine? Wine. Tequila or vodka? Neither. Don't drink spirits. White or red? White. Operating your own company yes. or advising others to build their dreams? 50-50. Both. Okay. And that, is that what you do at the moment? I it guess? is. Yeah. Most inspirational person in the world to you? Um, probably was several, but I think that Martha Lane Fox is inspirational. Are you friends with her? Yes, I am. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, you're trapped on a desert island. God forbid. You can bring three things, not your family. That's sad. What are they? Can't bring my cat. Oh, no, you can definitely bring your cat. Bring my cat. Cats okay. have ruled out. Okay, so he likes cat. Cats. That's cat. <laughs> cat, Dolly Parton, uh, Ragdoll, lovely. Um, oh, I've got Ragamuffin. Oh, very good. There we are. So yeah. we are as one. And uh, probably, I'm trying to think of which book I would bring. It has to be, got to be meaty too boring to say Shakespeare so something like uh, an Ernest Hemingway or Nancy Mitford book or probably actually Pride and Prejudice uh, would be great and third thing let's have a bottle of wine nice chilled white, white wine cloudy yeah. bay lovely okay gonna have to drink it quickly on mm, that beach indeed That's I'm assuming there's water somewhere <laughs> okay um, well actually speaking of which beach or ski slopes Oh, 50-50. Oh, yeah? Yeah, okay. definitely. You're very on the fence at the moment. Yeah, sorry. Tea no, or coffee? Coffee. Okay, there we go. Definitive. Um, right, so let's crack on with the story. Um, let's head back in time to the beginning. So you were born in... I was born actually in Wigan, in Lancashire. Okay. Near that, cause my, uh, sort of slightly an accident of history because my father was working there at the time. And grew up uh, just outside London till I was seven uh, in Surrey. And also my, my grandfather's Swiss, so we spent a lot of time in Switzerland. And then moved to Yorkshire when I was seven. And that's really what I count as home, near York. And uh, my mother till very recently. I lost my mother last year when she was 90, but she was there for a long time. So that's really what I regard as home. So you, uh, like a Yorkshire 
lass, as they say. I just love Yorkshire. I mean, I think it's got. I think it's a fantastic place to be. I think I do you spend much time there. Still? Yeah, I do actually. And I think, well, not as not no, and not as not much probably as I would like. But I also think it's a really good balance to London because obviously I've lived in London since I left university. But I think it's really important, particularly when you're thinking about restaurants and thinking about customers most of all, not to be too London centric. And I think it can be very easy to fall into that. But if you if you believe in democratic restaurants and you believe in trying to uh, uh, really trying to satisfy customers, I'm really, really trying to, to work out what it is that you can do to make it every customer want to come back to you, then I think it's very good to have a different point of view and not one that's just based somewhere in the West End. Couldn't agree more. Um, I think that's a very common thing that everyone buggers up when they're in London, frankly, is you just forget. Oh, we, we found that when building our business. Just Did we you? ended up with a load of restaurants in the uh, in London for the first two years. And then it, because we were based here and it takes you a while to get out. And we're still the same with the UK. Like Our next goal for this year coming is, is to look outside the UK. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in, in one way, the UK feels very small now. And if you're going to really expand it, but if you've got to really killer brand something like Hawksmoor or something that you want to take it outside the UK because you feel that you need to be in 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 world class cities in, in, in more than just the UK it's not the UK hasn't obviously the UK has, has, has several really world class cities of course it does but if you want to expand in more than those then you're going to want to go outside the UK but in another way um, it, it feels that people are just so unadventurous about the UK and I think it's jolly interesting that if you're talking about hospitality I think, I think the groups that are starting outside London and actually, I, I chair a, a, a little group called Mowgli, which is the one sort of one sentence test, is this Indian home kitchen. But I think it's interesting to, to have that model of starting outside outside London, well outside London, and then coming south as opposed to what's happened for so long. And I also think it's been really interesting in the last, I don't know, 10 years, a sort of micro model of that, I guess, for London is um, restaurants starting outside, quite well outside the centre. Mm-hmm. And and you know, obviously the well-documented Peckham East scene or whatever, and and then moving into the centre if they as and when they choose to do so. Um, just coming back to your background, what kind of upbringing did you actually have? How would you describe it? Rather wonderful, actually. I think that it was of myself, my brother, and my parents, and it was actually we were talking about this yesterday. I think when you're f- very, very fortunate to grow up in a household. Uh, which encourages learning, not in a pushy way at all, but just as a sort of naturally accepted part of life, that there's books everywhere and it's sort of almost by osmosis, that's what you do is you read a lot and you read newspapers and you talk a lot and you eat a lot, which is where my interesting foods come from. Um, I think it's a, a wonderful privilege and... Uh, and I, I recognise it as a privilege as well, and one that I try to carry on in my, you know, I guess, with my own children. That it's just a natural part of life. It's not something that's an add-on. But I do think, as in so many areas, when you think about how lucky you've been, I do think it must be just. Uh, I mean, sort of, you know, it, it must be so hard when you grow up in a house where learning is discouraged. Uh, or you know, I mean, actively not actively encouraged is one thing, but actually discouraged is a very big thing to break through. Um, something I think quite a lot about. But um, yeah, no, and it was it was great, and we I grew up with with um, you know in the country and horses and 
rowing boats and that sort of thing. I mean, it's not as solid as an Amazon's at all, but um, but it was it was it was it was lovely. It was um, fun. Were your parents entrepreneurial? What did they do? No, they weren't entrepreneurial. But, um, my father worked for British Rail. He was um, he was passenger manager in in the northeast region. That's why we were based in York. And my mother was a social worker. My parents went to university together just after the war. Um, my father. They, they, my mother was in the Rens. My father was in uh, in the Navy, and they met then. And when my f- the father was demobbed, because they were still quite young at the end of the war, they were just just old enough to enlist. And my mother actually enlisted after the war had finished. But um, my father was awarded a place at either Cambridge or Hull, which at that time was a co- uh, a college of the University of London, and he could go to Hull immediately. So they went, and they literally had no money. I mean, they had no money. Uh, and and loved it and went to university together and my mother was uh, actually working to support my father and then was offered a, an opportunity to do a diploma in social work, mm. which she did and she, she worked in social work all her life and was one of the most sort of inspirational. Actually, you should, when you ask me who do I most admire, mm. it's my mother. My, actually, my mother, as I say, died last year, but she was my most inspirational person. Totally non-materialistic um, and genuinely, genuinely concerned is how, how you make the world a better place I think in a way that she would hate me for saying that phrase because she didn't look at it in that way at all she wasn't at all sanctimonious um, but anyway that's that's um, uh, that. My, my, my parents were both Labour Party members my mother canvassed until she was 90 um, and uh, believed firmly in state school and in the welfare state generally which are principles that I wholeheartedly adopt myself um, you went on to read uh, English and American literature, correct? Was that part uh, English of a American career? studies. Okay, was that part of a career plan or did you fall into that or did you have a career plan? No career plan, absolutely So not. what made you go into that? Was that just having the books around you all the time and wanting to further that? Because I loved English mm-hmm. I, 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 and I had a particular interest in the American literature of, of the sort of, during the, the, the two big waves of immigration, so late 19th and early 20th century. I just found that very, the literature of immigration and assimilation, I found very interesting. And the, the UEA, uh, as several of the new universities have, believed in schools of study rather than just streams of study, so uh, agglomerating um, certain disciplines together. So obviously in studies you looked at, in English and American studies, you looked at not only literature but history and media. So it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And it is it is a strange, a very strange and, and wholly wonderful arc that has taken me back there as Chancellor. And um, you went into an ad agency job after mm. that, is that correct? Yeah, I did. So how come? Why? Was that an aspiration, something you wanted to do? No, it was. I, I, I went to my career centre. I don't know if you went to your career centre in your universities, but I went once. I think from sort of oh my god, panic. Uh, and it was a very different place from what I think. Well, certainly from for UEA, the career centre now is a lovely, light, bright, welcoming place. That was sort of rather dark place certainly not frequented by the student body and I and I was given a question or he, the, the gentleman in there gave me three questions and he said how would you rank people business and creative and I can't actually remember how I ranked them I'm sure business was last um, but it's really I think it's really interesting that I have ended up in my view in a business that completely melds all three in a really wonderful way um, but anyway, I got a, 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 a somebody suggested that I went to look around an advertising agency called Bosemi Pollitt, which I did, and extraordinarily and rather in a sort of surreal fashion, while I was going for this walk around, they offered me a job, and it was wonderful. 
wonderful. I was an account planner, trainee account planner, and uh, it was a great time to be in advertising um, because it was when there was still a huge amount of advertising spend in the early eighties across all more you know in all uh, non digital media. Um, and it was it was great. It was researching consumers and researching products, which again is very sort of germane to what I've done since, mm. in a way. And I, we, one of the products we did was Hellman's mayonnaise, which was just breaking in the UK because before that had been salad cream. So we had to go and sit in lots of smart restaurants and eat chips, order chips, and eat them with Hellman's. And uh, anyway, so we, we, we launched like Hellman's. It was a dream, dream job, isn't dream. it? Dream, <laughs> literally yeah. the dream. And the, but I, I, the core of restaurants was very strong, and I'd never stopped working them. So when I, when I got my job at BMP at Bosworth Pollitt, I had six months until they could they, they, the, the program, the next graduate intake started. So I went to board for a bit, and then I came back and worked at a, a very groundbreaking restaurant in London called Peppermint Park, which your parents might remember in Covent Garden. Um, and uh, it was a very American restaurant, which is why it was very sort of glamorous and. Loads of cocktails and extraordinary, not particularly wonderful food, but um, uh, food served in a memorable style, put it that way. And uh, when I went to work in in advertising, I stayed working there one day a week because I loved it so much. And in the end, one of the two founders, who turned out to be Roger Myers, who turned out to be my long-term business partner and great friend, said, why don't you come and work with us? I was like, Roger, I can't possibly, I've got my career. And uh, he said, no, come on, come and work with us. And I said, what else? He said, oh, I don't know, just come. And so eventually I did. I, 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 I left the advertising agency, which is sort of job du jour for the people who sort of really wanted. And everybody thought I was completely mad and went to work in, in Peppermint Park. And we opened another restaurant called Coconut Grove. And then we bought some pubs. We bought a health spa called Ragdale Hall, which is still there near Birmingham. And various other things, and we took it public as you did in those days, and then we sold that in 1988. And I'd always had this idea of wanting to do a French cafe where you could go and you could have a glass of wine, you could have a cup of coffee, I could have something to eat any time of day. And I had to sort of see there was this one cafe called La Palette, which is still there actually um, in Paris, which I really loved. And Roger had this restaurant in the south of France. He loved that. had a very small menu, um, set menu. So we sort of put the ideas together. And we opened the first Cafe Region 89 in Richmond. And it was a classic sort of... You know, I mean, being an entrepreneur in those days was such an unfashionable sort of non-thing. It was, you know, I mean, you sort of started a restaurant. I don't think people very rarely used the word entrepreneur. Really, Certainly, probably, you know, to the power of 10 times less than it's used now anyway. And we've, used this, we've used this in the past, but it seems seems mm. relevant that uh, George W. Bush's uh, quote that the French have no word for entrepreneur. <laughs> Stephanie, stick that somewhere on the that. Cafe Rouge story. I feel uh, we actually dug up just just before we go into the Cafe Rouge story, we dug up a Guardian article from two thousand and two. Um, about you where you were quoted as saying you quickly realised you were not cut out to be a cog in a wheel and that you wanted to try to run the show. So when do you think that was? I mean, how quickly are we talking? When I was when I was in the advertising agency, yeah. um, not just because of it, it. not because of, just it was just a visceral feeling, and I think that it, you know you haven't asked me, but I hope you won't ask me what defines an entrepreneur. But I do think that if you had to sort of boil it down, I think you just know, and you don't care about you don't care about it's not it's nothing to do with money. I think maybe it's a bit more now. Maybe you, you can tell me that, 
but it's much more to do with having a sort of e-day not, not needing money. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. That's certainly, I mean, is that. It, I think it's a lot more about um, you have to be totally prepared to have nothing for a long period of time. I quite agree. Yeah. I quite agree. And to risk anything you have got. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it probably a, hasn't changed now from any point in time. No. It's just more real. No, it, it, and more crowded. Yes, um, not more crowded. Is that although it didn't feel uncrowded when we were doing it, I guess it never does. But, you know, we were so, it was the classic entrepreneurial thing, you know, mortgage your flat. I was lucky enough to have a flat to mortgage um, and, uh, and and literally build it brick by brick and put everything together. And it was it was fantastic. How did you finance it? So was that was that how did you like mortgage that. your flat? And... I mortgaged my flat. Yeah. I think I got, I, I think we both, both Roger and I put in £50,000 each. Yep. That's how we started it. Okay. And that was just for that first one in Richmond? Yep. And then you wait for it to turn a profit before you move into we the next one? We got some or... investment at that point. It was sort of very nascent, very small PE house. Uh, put in, I can't remember now, but it would have been somewhere around another 50, maybe £75,000. Not very much at all. It was more of a, a sort of a, a well-trodden path in those days was that you went public early. And that's what we did with Rouge as well. That's how you funded it. On the, how early are we talking? Oh, golly, within the first two years. So that was, um, so was more liquid markets. Well, it wasn't AIM in those days. I think it was. I think it was. It was not the third market. I think it was known as then. It was the overcounter, and then it was the third market. Um, and that really was how you fa- we financed our expansion. It wasn't just us. Quite a few people did that. Okay. How many stores did you have at that point? Cafes? Mm, maybe three. Okay. Where were number two and three? Uh, second one was Kensington Park Road, and the third one was Putney. Do okay. any of those exist anymore as, as coverages? Uh, no. No, they don't. They all existed for quite a long time. And there is still, I mean, Oxford, for instance, uh, is still the one that we, I mean, it's been refurbished, obviously, that we built and put together. So there is still a rump, more probably more than a rump, of the original sites that we did. Mm. But it was it was made possible. I mean, it, we, first of all, our business plan called for us to do six and then to sell. So we were... You can't exactly say we were, you know, looking to take over the world. We weren't. And secondly, it was as the, the thing that changed that allowed us to do Café Rouge was that there was a change in the licensing laws in 1986. And pre that, uh, the Licensed Victuals Association, who um, basically controlled, they were, as you can imagine, as the name sounds, publicans. And the publicans' body very fiercely controlled bar licenses. So, in other words, places where you could drink without eating, which essentially were pubs. And pubs, as I think would be widely recognized, were not, certainly were not female friendly places in those days. It was only beer, it was all, tons of smoking, it was sticky carpets, and, and it was it was just, they just weren't particularly. Mm places that 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 young working women or non-working women or uh, wanted to go um and so there was a big demand a big pent-up demand of, of you know i want to go somewhere that i choose to go yeah. that serves the things that i want to eat and drink but it said it wasn't only women by any means but you mentioned small menu how small was your menu actually it wasn't it, it wasn't that remember small. it being that small it was physically <laughs> quite big actually because <laughs> it was also beautifully handwritten mm. by a graphic artist we had um when we changed it four times a beautiful and beautiful sort of cursive script it was really lovely to look at uh but it was i can tell you it was six starters and eight main courses it started off being six then went to eight and six puddings and we also had a lot of coffee trade, which got eaten away when Seattle Coffee Company and then Starbucks came in. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had it for the first maybe 
three or four years. Uh, and I remember coming to Kew at Seattle Coffee Company when they opened in Longacre and see what it was like. I was like, whoa, this is going to blow us out of the water, our coffee trade, as it did. Were they doing takeaway then? Or yeah, what? they were the first in with an American, the Starbucks-type model, and Starbucks bought them uh, to get a foothold in the UK. I mean, they were... They were certainly here for a few years under Seattle Coffee Company. And I remember hearing the founders talk. It was a husband and wife team. And you couldn't, uh, the unintended consequences of history, but you couldn't, ha- there was there were no ta- proper takeaway coffee cups with lids that would allow you to drink out of them in those days. So they had to bring them in from America. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's so interesting, but it caught, like, a bit like Café Rouge caught fire. Um, obviously, so did that. It's a fashionable thing. Um, mm. Well, it, was, it wasn't so much... I guess it was fashionable, but it was just what people wanted. It, fi- it, it filled a niche in people's lives. So, you know, it was in areas where people lived, so you didn't have to travel to the West End. And it's hard to uh, rem- explain or, or, or remind people that obviously were in London during the time will remember that the restaurant scene in London at that time was really very small. It You know, the, 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 it really was. There was not the plethora of places... Mm in any sense that there is now. And it was geographically quite confined as well. And you'd have the, a few odd neighbourhood, generally independent restaurants, where you'd be a very loyal customer. Um, and when things got tough in the early 90s, a lot of those restaurants uh, were the ones that, that, that offered themselves to us as, as sites. So we benefited from that sort of change in the market. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Do you think that is a bit of an issue now um, in terms of the fact that 
consumers expect. They, they like the new things. And the fact that um, if a brand's been around for a long time, it's at automatic disadvantage because it's not the new, new thing. You know what? I think if you look at a list of, and what you're talking about is mainly fast, casual yeah. dining. Yeah. And if you look at a list of the winners and the losers, the thing that, in my view, unites the winners is a quality product with a passionate founder or leader who cares intensely about that quality. And I think the thing that unites the losers is the other side of the coin, that the product is not good. And I'm not saying it's only the quality of your food and drink and service that defines your success, because obviously there has to be, you have to have a uh, an offer that, you know, um, good old differentiated offer. You have to have a, you have to be laser, laser sharp about what it is that you're doing. And I think if there's one thing probably that makes businesses, my belief is that if there's one thing that causes businesses to fail, and I've been, I know this through pain because I've done it, is that if you're not super clear about what you, that business is, and I call it the one sentence test, and I'm really, really fascinated by how people describe their businesses in, in one sentence and so many people cannot do so so if you're not clear about about what either the emotional hook is for your customer or practically what it does what it offers i don't see how you can possibly expect your consumer to be clear about that or your your your, your marketplace to be clear about that so i think that i think that the, the, when you're talking about restaurants i think there's there's both those things you know am i absolutely clear about what i want to be you know who i am and and can I can I define it in one sentence? And then also, is it good enough? Um, and and it's jolly difficult in restaurants and bars and pubs to be constantly, consistently good enough. Um, it's it's a it's it's a life's work. You know the, the 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 mantra that I've always had for all my businesses, every single one, is that every customer leaves wanting to return. That is what I set out to do. And it's so you you know actually you know you're never going to achieve it because if you have thousands of transactions a week ranging from somebody having a cup of coffee to somebody having a full meal and all the interactions that involves, it's highly unlikely that every single customer is going to go out saying, God, fantastic, I'm coming back here. But it's better to target best. Of course it is. It just drives you on. Um, Can you give us a whistle-stop tour of the Café Rouge story? So, so far we've got up to three restaurants. Listing it within two years is what you did. What about till being removed from the business, like removing yourself from the business? Like, what does that story look? How long was that journey? Seven year period. Seven year period. My life tends to go in seven years. Seven year cycles. Uh, hundred nearly hundred and twenty. Self imposed seven year cycles. That's no, no, no. Just how it, how it just yeah. there seemed to be an arc that naturally, for whatever reason, took me through that and, okay. and through punch and spirit. But um, it's it's so yeah, it, it grew as you can tell very quickly, uh, in organically in the first three years, we. In so that was from eighty nine, actually two years. In ninety one, we acquired the UK assets of um, Robert Earl, who started went off to uh, who was who's British, but went off to America to start Planet Hollywood, and he had about five restaurants in the UK which we bought. Uh, so that Those gave were us Planet Hollywood restaurants. No, 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 no. They were Mama Amalfi Italian restaurant and something called the Rock Island Diner in the Trocadero Centre. Um, anyway, so they were different brands that we had, and we expanded. We expanded Mamma Malfi as well. We then um, uh, started looking outside London. The first uh, site we opened outside London was in Birmingham, in a wonderful development called Brindley Place, which was actually developed by the same people who are developing Kings Cross now, who, who I think are very talented mm. uh, urban 
uh, wonderful urban developers. Um, and that was unbelievably successful. We, we, we weren't at all sure because this, this, this national rollout of, far, of, 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 if you like, mid-market restaurants that, you, that everybody now is so familiar with, the only people doing it in the early 90s were Pizza Express and ourselves. Nobody else was doing it. Mm. And we sort of ran neck and we were sort of tended to follow each other. Pizza Express had started actually slightly earlier than we had. So we yeah, did. so basically where you see a Pizza Express, you'll see a Cafe Rouge yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. Is that the competition over, because there's a lot of competition over um, the actual lease, leases that you have, isn't there? Less competition then. Yeah. Uh, less competition then because you were still using, there, there were, as I say, there were still a lot of independent restaurants who decided to, that it was the time, you know, they weren't going to expand and in a, in a, in a tough market because the early 90s were tough. It was recessionary. Um, that, that 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 was the time that they were going to sell their sell their property. So Brindley Place was a ski what you call a scheme now. So it was a new build, but a lot of the time we were going to existing uh, restaurants, mm. um, which was easier than going into uh, to schemes. A, it's cheaper if you've got the basic infrastructure in place of an extract and loos and a kitchen, even though you might need to refurbish them. And also they have a lot of charm. Those buildings obviously are architecturally really interesting, which it's, it's less easy at times to make more more modern scheme built uh, architecture mm. interesting. But I think a lot of the buildings we had were were really lovely architecturally, really 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 inviting. So you've got to 120 restaurants. What was the turning point for you? What what what? makes you leave do you want to leave what what happened well we didn't leave we got an offer okay. so so we were a listed from company from Whitbread okay um we'd had interest before that which we hadn't really wanted to pursue um and then and, and we'd also developed something called the dome as well which is a great concept uh much more cafe bar than sort of cafe bar restaurant if you like with with just a, when we were talking about the short menu before that was based around a great bar and a very short prefix menu that basically we allowed to sell out at lunchtime. So if you didn't come early, it was going to go. It was only £5 and it was fantastic. Mm. Um, and so Whitbread came along and very much wanted to buy us and offered us a fairly healthy multiple. So in the end, we decided to accept it. And actually, I stayed on for a year. As um, as, as was the CEO, yeah. Yep. Um, but it's, you know, if, you, if, if you've created something, it's never the same when you've, and you can't feel the same attachment to it when it belongs to somebody else. You just can't. Um, was it exciting though? I mean, do you, imagine, do you remember your emotions? Like, what did you actually do the day you sold it? What did you go, what did you do? Are you and a business partner? I can't remember what we did. I did I, I, well, I can remember actually it was my birthday huh. and, uh, and, and we, in nice. those days, yeah, in those days we had fax machines in our houses and these faxes kept coming, coming through that I had to sign, um, and fax back. Uh, but so I remember that, but it was, and it was, it was definitely an admixture of emotions when, I mean, it was Cafe Rouge was, and I always think of it as it was, you know, I had three children during the time that I built Cafe Rouge and, and a bit like T.S. Eliot and, and, and Coffee Spoons. I, I sort of, you know, I sort of think of the, my children when they were born. I remember when they were born about the number of Cafe Rouges we had. So my first daughter was born when we had three. That was a bit of a thing. And my son was born when we had 30 and my third child, my daughter, um, my, my youngest daughter was born when we had 70. So, and it was very, honestly, I mean, all my businesses, I think, feel like families of some sort. So they feel like extended families. And that's why I 
passionately love them um, because it feels just like a lovely place to be. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying without problems. I'm, getting, I'm sure we'll get onto that. Um, but uh, it's just it's just when when you when you found something, you have that ability to create another another type of family around you. I'm sure you guys know that. And there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. I guess that's when it goes back to the cog in a wheel thing. Mm. Would you rather be a cog in somebody else's family? Would you rather be a member of somebody else's family or would you rather build your own? And uh, so, yeah, so it was when we sold Rouge, it was definitely a mixture of emotions between this is wonderful and unexpected and sort of rather extraordinary. Were you back at work on Monday or did you take a little time off? Well, as I say, I stayed with it for a year. And then no, I, I mean, time off I meant like a couple of days no, or a week. No, not really. No, no, okay. no, it just went on. We were very much business as usual. Mm. And Any extravagant purchases to celebrate? Nothing. Oh, that's not true. We, we moved house. Okay. We moved house, but that's that was more a function of I had, we were bursting out of the other one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I, we, 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 yeah, we bought another house and, 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 and sort of renovated that. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I say that was more of the necessity character, um, character um, sort of category, I think. And then you stayed on for a year and then what did you do afterwards? Left that and then I was going to stop because I had three very young children so that was the idea that's just not what exactly you're so right there so then we bought rather than stopping we bought two years later we bought three and a half thousand pubs as you do oh hard or go home exactly so there were five of us it was sort of led by Hugh Osmond who'd also uh, expanded Pizza Express and a great group of guys so there there was uh, there were five of us in total so you ended up working with essentially someone who was once your competitor yeah I know, Did you guys so. get on from an early age, or like? I don't think I really post? knew Hugh terribly well. I don't say hello to. So, how did you guys come together? That uh, that that when because Roger left Roger Myers, who was my business partner in Cafe Rouge, left uh, um, when it when it was sold. He left. He had no. He was chairman. He had no active role. Whereas I was actually running the business. So he left, and then he got together with Hugh, and they sort of started looking at pubs. And then, when, and, 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 and then after I'd left, this sort of idea sort of came to fruition a year or so later. So we formed a group board and we had the, the three and a half thousand pubs were made up of both uh, tenanted and managed assets, which listeners might not be familiar with. But one is a is a, is a more like a model where the pub company has a relationship with its tenant. So uh, you, the tenant would actually operate the pub and pay rent to the, the, the pub co, the, the enterprise or the punch in those days. Oh, what became punch? Um, and the managed is what what I do, which is when you or it, it's, it's essentially owned by you that you employ all the staff and you um, you build the offer for the consumer and you you run it. Was there one that was particular your your prefer- preference in terms of um, actually running a business with? The model, yeah. Oh, very much managed. Yeah, more because more because I, well, not is it, the control. That's true, but just because I, I, if for me, it's all about the customer, and so if and of course you could say the tenants my customer, and that's sort of true, but it's a very different relationship. Yeah. And in fact, was 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 is known to be quite a competitive relationship when it's landlord and tenant sometimes, particularly in that tied pub model. And it I can be it's changing ex- now. Yeah, and I guess with your experience of understanding what the proposition is to the customer and making sure you deliver on it, you can't create that through a tenant. No, you can't because you, they, 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 it's, it's, it's their business. No, yeah, it's their exactly. business. Um, and they're, they're effectively the entre- they're a loco entrepreneur there. And they are entrepreneurs. And, and, and a lot of them are very wonderful entrepreneurs. Um, and but, but the managed business was, was, was what we did. So after, and then we, so we gathered up, if you like, all the 
Talented Assets and Created Punch, which became a public company in 2002. And then there were still 1,100 managed pubs. And uh, we split up the group structure at that point. And we, we were backed by private equity. We, need, we took any private equity money we could lay our hands on, basically, to buy these pubs. And um, uh, they asked me if I'd stay on as CEO of the managed group. And after some thought, I did. And although 1,100 pubs sounds like a huge number of pubs, it was uh, actually in the, it, it's in a bit for a big pub group. It's not very many, so we either had to we, we were too big to be nimble, and we were too small to do really great supply deals. So Scottish and Newcastle fortuitously put their pubs, their fifteen hundred very large pubs, on the market about a year later. So I entered a very exciting auction to to buy those, and and, and we we did we bid very determinedly, and we got them. And brought in um, another private equity house at that time. So we were working with big American private equity because private equity, I mean, Texas Pacific Group were our first backer in 1999, 2000. And we were their second European deal. And it was still such a, you know, it wasn't the sort of well-established platform in London and the UK that it is now. It was still really, the Americans were just beginning, American money was just beginning to come over here and the UK private equity scene was just beginning to get going. Um, so we we had sort of the, the big... Uh, the, the, the bigger players backing us. So we had CVC and uh, TPG and Merrill Lynch and latterly Black, Blackstone. It was a very, very intense period. Mm. And I think it's, for me, it's been, an, it's a different type of entrepreneurship. We inherited a business when we bought Allied Demex pubs that was declined because it was, Allied Demex is essentially a wine and spirits company and the pubs were rather a, uh, they were sort of rather a second secondary division. Um, they weren't the core business, put it that way. So it was declining at some terrifying rate a year, uh, sales and EBITDA. So it was it was a it was a real turnaround, and it's so interesting to have been you know to, to have had the opportunity to build a company literally from you know the first germ of an idea up in terms of Cafe Rouge and Pelican, and the other concepts that were within within Pelican Group, and take a behemoth of a of a, a business with eighteen thousand employees and three and a half thousand pubs, and you know very few systems and lots of entrenched behaviour and um, a rather wonderful building, red brick building in Burton-on-Trent, which was our headquarters, uh, and and turn it around. It's absolutely crazy. That I, I can't comprehend what a challenge that must be. I think it's one thing when you think about going to a company and you're, you're, you've are you're got staff, you're all in one building perhaps, yeah, and you're changing the culture of that. To, to doing what you did with on a, almost a distributed model where these are all these kind of soloed, siloed you know, locations and you are trying to change this. How, how on earth do you kind of... Um, do that. Keep track of you know who you know which ones are actually adapting to the change and and is it just a slow process? Do you have to just get the right people around you? It, it's slower than you want. Uh, it, the, the the funny thing was, I remember as if it was yesterday, walking into Burton and Trent for the first time and thinking, this is going to be so easy because there's going to be so many people that do all that you know because when you, you i mean you guys know that, that when you're starting up something like your equivalent of cafe rouge or the the, the, the the companies that you guys got the software companies you've got um is that you never have enough people you're always doing and, and in a physical business that's probably amplified because you, you, you the, the, the sort of tasks you have to be in different places at the same time so you know you are you are 
chief, you know, you're the chief marketing officer. You are the builder. You're the often the architect. You, you're, you're, you're the intern. You're, the you're, the you're everything. You are literally everything, and 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 sometimes it feels like you literally are, you know, doing every single job, and that's part of the delight of it as well. And I thought, oh, this is going to be so easy. There's so many people. There's going to be an HR director, and there's going to be a, this person, yeah, and you. I so the scales fell from my eyes so quickly, which was particularly in that culture, which was, was a very uh, people had been there for a very long time. Um, it, it was hugely overmanned and over not over women because it was, wasn't mainly men, but it was hugely over peopled, and the the the, the top layer of people had become the very top layer had become a bit ossified, and we had, it was came very clear to me that, that those that those people were not going to move at pace, and they would be much happier, and I would be much happier if they weren't in the business, and there were some very good people below, but there was definitely a culture of avoiding decisions rather than taking decisions, so the, the whole thing was extremely interesting and. Uh, finding the right people that were going to make it go fast, that that wanted to change things, that actually wanted to change things. And change is super scary. People, when they've been doing something you know for a long time, are very scared of change, and they never see that it can make things ten times better. It's always felt that change is going to make things worse. And of course, people aren't really hardwired for uncertainty either. So if you're if if you are changing things, people become very uncertain. And the first thing when people are uncertain is that their focus goes off what they're doing and goes on to themselves, which is we'd all do that uh, all of us um, yeah of course how, we would how much has it, has it changed um you know over the course of you being involved in the industry with technology because presumably yeah. when you started you know sending sales reports to head office yes. was a manual thing whereas yes. now tills do it automatically it's a lot easier to keep you know your finger on the pulse with different sites mm-hmm. I think it's. I think it's wonderful. I think what we have now is wonderful. I think, bizarrely, the restaurant business still, in 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 some ways, is run as it used to be when I first entered it, which is a strange, strange thing. So you know, we still have lots of restaurant chains. Still have very fragmented supply chains. Uh, still, still will have twenty. Maybe I'm exaggerating. 12 different suppliers, 45 invoices a week per site, a lot of man hours putting stuff away. I mean, so there's, there's, there's a lot more change to come. But Tills, you, as you mentioned them, how wonderful, you know, the, the way that you have instant data and instant analytics and, and all the things that are going to follow, uh, like payment methods and uh, automatic ordering and things like that. It's, 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 it's fantastic. It's really fantastic. But in the end... You know, I guess you know, technology is going to change the restaurant business. Of course, it is, and it is already has already changed. And delivery we were talking about before is, is one example. But in the end, you know, good old fast fashioned hospitality, which is welcoming your customer, making them feel confident and relaxed, giving them great food and drink, um, and and at a good price in a comfortable place, and they, in a way that they go out feeling better when they go out than when they came in. And that is it, always, I think, that moment of human contact that, that when somebody is recognised as an individual and, and their individual needs and wants, when somebody just says to a complete stranger, like, "Oh, you look tired. Why don't you come and sit down and, and you know, I'll get you a menu. Just tell me what you want." It's, it's genuine nurturing, and I think that's a. I guess that's why we're all in it. Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish, whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big HQ. We take care of the whole process from start to finish, and our service is completely free. Check us out on contour.space.
So this next section, we just want to get a little bit behind the skin and understand you as a person. It won't be too painful, I promise. Uh, I guess the first question is, how would you describe yourself? Quite driven, very family oriented and believe in loyalty and long relationships a great deal and very interested in continuing to learn and in new things and in people generally, I, I hope, I think. So what does a typical day look like to you? Do you have there a typical, no typical day? day. I there thought really you isn't. might say that. Okay. Mm. Because I'm, I'm involved in a lot of things, mm. both hospitality and non-hospitality. You sound like very busy, though. What do you actually do to unwind? Do you get time to unwind? Cook. Okay. Uh, and just sit around the kitchen table with my, my kids and my husband. Are you an early riser or are you a, a, a night owl? You are early riser. early riser. Yeah. What time do you go to bed? Early. Oh, yeah? 10.30. No, not that early. Not that sad. 10.30 or 11. Okay. He goes to bed at 8. We're going to edit it and say that it was 9.30 then. Um, What's the thing that you're proudest of achieving then in your life? Is it Café Rouge? Is it your family? Is it your cat? It is. Oh, my cat. Dolly Parton. Um, Dolly Parton, yeah. Uh, No, I didn't really achieve her. She she arrived. Um, Definitely my family, without question. And... You know, fortunately, I'm asked much less these days because I think it's much less of a thing, as and it shouldn't be a thing at all about how do you cope with you know being a working mother. Um, but I think without without question, raising a great family and having lines of communication entirely open with all of them, and of course that's not without bumps in the road. Don't get me wrong, um, but it's great and to be able to do a business alongside that and mm. very much integrate it into your family. I think I've also got a great belief that. Uh, work and personal life shouldn't be felt like two separate spheres. And I'm, I'm sure that's one of the great pushes towards having your own business, starting your own idea. Because I, I am also a huge believer and an increasing advocate, I'm not advocate because everybody wants to do it really, but values-led businesses, that I think businesses should be able to not only say what they are, but how they do business very, very clearly, um, so that people can make a choice about whether that's somewhere they want to work um, or not. Um, and I think they're generally common sense values, but I I don't think anybody should ever be asked to do anything in business that they wouldn't do in their own personal life. I mean, speaking about um, you know such perspective, do you have you had people along the way help you craft some of these perspectives? Has this all been you know uh, the natural Karen Jones show, or have you had mentors? Um, I don't think I've had any particular mentors, but I've had a ton of people that I really admire that I, I work with. And, and you, I think as we all do, you take bits from um, from various things that you see. One of the great sort of wonderful pluses of sitting on other people's boards as a non-executive director is getting to see other people's business models close to. And I think that's an enormous privilege. And, you, you know, you can't help but learn from that. Um, and you, I think I, one doesn't, well, I certainly never go to a board meeting without coming out with a, a, sort of either a sharpened perspective or a new sense of something we could try or a new way of looking at something, either for that business or for one of the other businesses that I'm involved in. So it, it, it's, it's a wonderful way to constantly learn. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. It's amazing. It's very good. I want to remember it. Just straight off the bat as well. No, but it's, 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 um, I, it, because it's so true, right? Yeah. I think Roger Myers said that to me, uh, and it's it's so true because if you just if you just continue to do if you if you're not getting the outcome you want, but you continue to do what it is you're doing, 
um, then uh, you're certainly not going to get a different awesome. outcome. Love it. What an insightful man. Okay, this last section is about lessons and failures and how to deal with them. Generously sponsored by Calm.com, the meditation app. So a very reasonable starting point is to ask if you meditate. Funnily enough, I don't meditate, but it's one of my New Year's resolutions because my children do. And I think they, or two of my two children do, and I think they gain hugely from it. Um, and so I have sitting on my bed at my table, the mindfulness book, the eight-week course. So I shall, I shall attempt to be one of the news resolutions, unlike the many others that I fulfil. Perhaps we can convert you into a calm.com Perhaps user. Perhaps can. Um, so not a, nice, not a nice question to ask in this sort of way, but, you know, do you have regrets? Do you have things you think in your journey that you've done wrong that have changed the path for you and you wish you'd have done differently? No, I mean, I think that you have regrets about, do I have regrets? I don't think I have any real regrets. You know, there's always a bifurcation. There's always a choices you have to make. And I think that there have been some opportunities that have been offered that at the time I didn't feel able to take, whether it was joining a particular board or doing a particular thing, concept, whatever it might be, or joining together with some people to do something that I simply wasn't able at the time to do. So I suppose that would fall into the regret pile. But you can't do everything. And, and and I think that I have become somewhat better in um, not spreading myself too thin uh, because it's always, as you will know, it's a great temptation to do everything. Um, but there's a, such an enormous satisfaction in doing things well. And I, I, I certainly don't always succeed in that, that at all. But I think that if you can take time over the things and really, the older I get, the more I realise that mulling things over nearly always, for me, produces a better result than making a knee-jerk decision, which was probably a feature of me in my 20s. But I think that in 30s, I think actually taking time to really think about ramifications of the decision and letting it sort of stew over gently in your mind is, is that generally a good thing. Well, not to uh, try and stir up too much fear in your memories, but I would just assume running such a massive operational and logistical business as Café Rouge, and I guess all your businesses hugely operational, can you share with our listeners a time when everything just went absolutely up oh, shit Lord. creek? Which and, one do you want? Well, what stands out in your memory and what did you do okay. to solve it and how did it make you feel and for how long? Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you two because one's one's a very early one, which is, uh, but, but no less serious at the time, um, which was that in our first Café Rouge in Richmond, our manager, who's a wonderful Frenchman called Philippe, uh, wonderful, possibly in inverted commas, uh, and big, uh, but, but was a, a true restaurant professional, wonderful with his customers. Uh, and I did notice that his, those days you could smoke inside, obviously, uh, his fingers were getting yellow and yellow as, the, as the, the, the pile of packets of untipped camel grew and didn't, in a really clumsy way, put two and two together until I went there. I just had a feeling. I went there on the Tuesday after a, a long bank holiday weekend and he wasn't there. And I said to um, somebody, where is Philippe? And they said, he's gone to the bank. And I went down and opened the safe and found the bank book there, which is no, and, and no money and the bank book, the, 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 the slips unstamped. So the money had gone and the bank book, had, it had not been put in the bank. 
at that point he re- he returned and I said not as calmly as I'm saying it now and probably not with these words but Philippe where is our money and which I think was £4,000 it was pretty much it, it was a lot of money and it was all in cash those days not really in credit cards and he broke down and said I have given it to a man and it turned out he'd been gambling and he got into trouble and given this bag of money to a man on Richmond train station that day on, on the platform. And so I locked him in the wine cellar. But because I slightly was, I, the, the phone, the telephone was inside the wine cellar. So it's because I needed to phone first Roger and then the police, I was inside the wine cellar with him. Is he still there or is, <laughs> yes. he, is he out now? No, he, funnily enough. He's out, okay. He's out. Um, how, um, how do you go about trusting anybody? I mean, surely that, that just leaves a mark where you... Forever, you're then kind of like you have this natural distrust. To... You can't, you can't. I mean, it was you. You know what you were talking about systems earlier on, yeah. And and I think that you have to operate on ninety nine percent great systems and one percent trust. You're never no system yeah. in the world is ever going to be a hundred percent. And if you lose your faith in in all human nature, then you're never going to do a business that that has any sort of people element in it. And that's leaves you with a pretty small list of things you're going to do. So now I don't think it made me feel like that. I think it made me feel... uh, it made me feel more determined to get processes right and to make sure you know, and to realise that on any business that's going to see succeed, those processes have to be very well honed. They are the base of the pyramid, and they allow you if they're they're good. They allow you to operate nimbly at the top end towards your customer. Um, and then the second one, which was really really interesting, was when we were integrating the original Spirit pubs with Scottish and Newcastle, and you know books have and will continue to be written about the. Uh, the difficulties and fewer joys of integration and they are it is a very difficult thing and it links with not in this case so much but but a big company buying a small company um, and and a small entrepreneurial company and that's something I don't think in the majority of cases has been solved I don't think there is a and there's individual success stories of doing so but I think it remains a very difficult thing for a big corporation to buy a small entrepreneurial business I think funnily enough the big technical companies are, are, are do it much better I mean I think Google does it very well you know, using ways as an example you know they do buy companies and they have the, the nous and the space and the money to let them be um, and and let integration happen more n- naturally but when you're uh, a, a company that's you know, to do with people and businesses that you have to put together and then sort out uh, famous synergies. Either, in other words, you know, take cost out. Um, then you, th- there is a, a very painful part of doing that, which is also being very clear about the culture that you want to create and being very honest with people um, about about what you're trying to do. Um, and trying to give people certainty, as we were talking about earlier. You seem like a very uh, self-assured person, and potentially this is, you know, the perspective of, of the beauty of hindsight, looking back on a career and being asked these after the fact, but you certainly come across like you're very confident in decisions, processes, strategies, and your ability to execute them. So the question is... Um, do you ever suffer from self-doubt? Or... Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like of an course. obvious question, but actually, you know, <laughs> obviously yeah, you, you, know you genuinely what? are coming across like the most, um, confidence is the wrong word, but self-assured, like really clear about what needed to be done and how you were going to do it. Person that we've probably interviewed, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I 
I probably am confident. I, ho- I hope not overconfident. That would be a horrible thing to be. But I, th- I think that if there was a gift that I could wish for my children and for for you all, for everyone, for everybody sort of starting out in their twenties now, and 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 it would be confidence, and particularly for young women. I, I feel very strongly about that, and 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 particularly particularly for young women entrepreneurs, because I think that it it is confidence that gives you the wherewithal to have a go and not to worry about the downside. Mm. And where that confidence comes from is something we could talk about for a long time. I think it comes a lot from being encouraged and from somebody standing on the sidelines, always knowing you've got a cheerleader on the sidelines. And I think that's so important that somebody's saying, God, well done, that's great. And and you know, I think that's wonderful. I think everybody needs that. From we talked about this with age. David Buttress from Just Eat, that you know, it makes such a difference if in your family you have one multiplier, someone that's who true. just says, I believe in you, you can do this. So even if in his case, he was someone, you know, his dad told him, you're an idiot, what are you doing? But his grandpa was like, of course you can do this. Yes. Why not? It's like, Wonderful. It doesn't matter if someone says, no, you just need one person to say you can do it. And it gives you the extra push. Doesn't it? I think it's wonderful. Um, if you weren't an entrepreneur in another life, what would you be? Um, cat breeder. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, cat breeder. Uh, maybe I, I would actually probably quite like to be a farmer. I, I love being outside and I love, I really genuinely do. One of my passions in life is growing vegetables. Mm. Um, so I think I'd probably love that or a landscape gardener in some way or maybe an academic. I'd, mm. I'd, 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 I, I was tempted to stay in academia. Um, so and do you I think that's what you'll do next, to spend more time in academia and... and growing vegetables. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no. Educating vegetables. I, I, I don't think I will, actually. I think that I will... Uh, as much, I, the one of the reasons I like investing in nascent hospitality businesses is because there is unquestionably a sort of switch that takes place indefinably as you get older. That you, it's absolutely not a something you say to yourself. It's not. It's not an extant you know, thing that you say. Okay, I am going to do this. But somehow I think naturally you want to uh, pass on what you've learned or what other people have told you to others to try and stop them making some of the stupid errors. That 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 I've made in my in, you know, in my just, it, it, history and you know if you can put if you can put two or three of the things in place um, to avoid the inevitable pain that happens if you don't have those things in business then how great is that? So I think that's a perfect place to wrap up. If you could supply some advice to uh, a hospitality entrepreneur starting up today, what would you say they need to know? What are your top tips for them to succeed? What I said before, which is be able to describe your business in one sentence. Be really clear about it. And if you can't do that, ask yourself why you can't do that. Is it because you're not clear? So I think that's absolutely essential. So that's the what, if you like. That's what what am I? What is my business? The second thing is be able to say how you do business, your three or four values that that, that are how they're going to be your guardrails. They're going to be things you judge your behaviour by and the behaviour of your team by. And of course, you have to be the, the absolute arbiter and you have to be the person who really lives those. And look at your numbers. Please look at your numbers. Don't ignore them. Don't not have them. Don't have them and not look at them because they're the other side of the picture. You cannot build a successful business without knowing if it, how much cash you've got in the bank. Please don't ignore that. Okay, well, thank you very much for all your time today and your awesome advice. Great pleasure. My great pleasure. Thank you, Karen. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. 
There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We were struggling a little bit in our London studio and this idea of this big job was like, great. We went against our values and that's something we hadn't done before and we won't do again. We knew we were taking a risk and we knew it could bite us because definitely values were not aligned and it was the worst fit. And where I am the most sad about it was that it damaged a lot of the people that worked in it. It was a perfect example of what not to do. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media, and if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.